Good morning and a very warm welcome to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill. And folks, today what we have taking place is Joe will be sharing with us about leaving a clean sheet. Very morbid maybe, but the thing is that he is reflecting on the legacy that one leaves behind should they pass away and how to make sure what that legacy is. Charlize will be reading to us our psalm for today, which is Psalm 45. And then, of course, we'll be listening to some music in regard to that. And for a quick on cup on tear together, we're going to be looking at the resurrection story where I am sharing with you over a cup of tea a story about the restoration of a car and how that impacts us spiritually. Then also, we continue our journey meeting with the real Jesus as Pastor Chris from Tullamore Bible Church goes and takes us on another journey of exploration on discovering Jesus for who he is. And today he takes us to the side of a well in Samaria where we meet the woman at the well, a very familiar story. So to start things off, why not begin with a song about the woman at the well, followed by Charlize reading Psalm 45 to us. We're reading from Psalms 45. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be a scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is a royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your lord. The city of Tyre will come with the gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her. Those brought to be with her. Led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore the nations will praise you forever and ever. Midlands 183 Folks, I've been drinking cup on tees all day. Cup on tea with this person, cup on tea with that person, cup on tea with another person. And now I'm sitting down drinking a cup on tea with you. I am just about full of tea at this point. But no worries about it. I have something I want to tell you. A story of restoration. A story of restoration. When I was growing up, there was a, a song 
um, that we used to sing on the school stage. Dinny O'Rafferty's motor car is the greatest, I declare. It's made up of bits and pieces that he picked up here and there. The engine must be ages old and still has got lots of power. With a gallon of stout in that petrol tank, it'll do 90 miles an hour. Such was the sort of stuff that we were learning. It goes to show you why Irish might have a drinking problem. But anyway, today I'm not talking about Dinny O'Rafferty's motor car. No, no. Today I'm talking to you about Sir Richard Rowan's motor car. Now, Richie was on the, the old WhatsApp with me there having a conversation during the week. And it just got my brain thinking and he and I have been conversing ever since. So back in 1980, Richie went and bought himself an Austin 1100. It was eight years old at the time, as the fellow would say. But he bought himself an Austin 1100, and there's only some of these in the country. You're kind of a rare sort of a car. Even back then, it was a rare sort of a car. But anyway, he bought it in 1980. But in 1990, even though the outside was looking good, she was falling apart. And that's a very key part of this story. Show you the car, show you the car. Right, it was falling apart. He brought it for the test. And he was told it was unworthy and he was not to go and put it on no road at all. So he went and put it into his brother's turf shed. And there the poor old car languished for another 20, 30, 23 years. There it just sat. And then 2013, he decided he was going to do something with this car. And so he went and started a restoration project. And he restored the car to its former glory. But the thing that really struck me about his story is this. As I said, the outside of the car looked fine. But twas the inside was the problem. And the chassis was falling away and it was deemed unroadworthy. So he decided to go and bring the car to a local panel beater. And the local panel beater then went and started this restoration project. But it took 10 years to restore this car back to its former glory. But apart from it being returned back to its former glory, it was being returned back to its original purpose. The purpose that it was intended for. That's another thing I like about this story. So Richie was saying that the car was one particular colour when he liked it, I bought it, and he wasn't all that excited about it. So he went off and he changed the colour at the end. I was having a conversation with one of my uncles years ago when the idea of wrapping cars was all the fad. And he was saying that how it is that, you know, we can wrap the car and it looks good on the outside. And suddenly it has this work done on it. But his inside is the problem. It's interesting that in this car of Richie's, the inside was the problem. The heart of the car was the problem. You see, I used to be driving a Toyota Corolla back in the day. It was a 1984. It was a great, oh, it was a rocket. It was a rocket of a car. But if you opened the back doors, you could go and see straight through the wheel arches and you could see the wheels. So when they brought in the old NCT, it was the end of my car. I had to go and get rid of it. And it was a great car. But as I said, it was a rust bucket. The engine was good, but it was a rust bucket. The outside was the problem. As if you opened the back doors, you could see the wheels when I think about it. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Ten years this restoration project took place. And when 
Richie was sharing his story with me. And I'll show you a picture of the car now fully restored. But when he was sharing this story with me, it got me thinking about what God goes and does with us. And sometimes, no, maybe all the time, that restoration project that God undertakes with us can take years. And I think about Moses. Moses ended up that he got things all wrong and he was out in the desert for 40 years. God restoring him for the, his original purpose that God intended him to be, the leader of Israel. God had to go and do the work. And what Richie was saying about his car is he had to source bits and pieces and bring in things. And that reminded me again, God, in Ephesians 2 goes and says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He's lavished it upon us, all his goodness and love and grace. Richie says his bank account was depleted going on putting this car back together, but we cannot outgo and outsource God. We cannot deplete God. God has just so much to lavish on us. Restoration. Listen to this out of 1 Peter. I think this is brilliant. 1 Peter in chapter 5. Peter has been exhorting the believers of the time to really step up to the mark. To be ambassadors for Christ. To take a stand in the face of persecution. To be leaders. That's of the church. That's what he's speaking to the men. To really rise up to the job. And then he finishes his whole section with this. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, that's the purpose, in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. Think about that. This car was unroadworthy. It was a rust bucket. It was falling apart. Richie then took it on board to go and restore his car back to its former glory, but back to its intended purpose. And then when it was all done, after years of suffering, ten years of being pulled out of, dragged out of, buffed, sanded, the rust removed, welding done, Everything being replaced, sprayed, restored after a long and lengthy period. That's what took place. And here Peter is saying to us that that's exactly what God is doing with you and me. And the God of all grace, all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, i.e. God doing a bit of work on you, sorting you out, just like he did with Moses back in the day. And I will go and say, just as he did with me in my life, put me into the tyre industry for 20 years, you know, to learn a thing or two about talking with people and stuff like that. And I have still much to learn. But here it is. What? After you've suffered a little while, will himself, God will Restore you. Make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Strong, firm, and steadfast. And so this crippled car that was no good, that was only fit for the scrap heap, was now made strong, it was made firm, it was steadfast, and it's roadworthy. And God's doing that with you. So here's the thing. 
what are you going through now? Are you going through the suffering where you're being ripped out and God's doing the work? Are you someone that you know that God has brought you to a place where you are firm in your faith? You're strong in your faith. You're steadfast in your faith because of the restoration work that he has been doing in you through Christ. I am telling you, it's not something else. Richie, thank you for sharing your story with me. Thank you for giving me permission to share your story. Midlands 183. Welcome back to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill. And now, folks, it's time to listen to Joe speaking on having a clean sheet. Hello. There are many things to learn from the life of good King Solomon, and most of these things are good. But his life didn't end well. 1 Kings 11 reads that the Lord became angry with Solomon because he went after other gods and didn't do what was commanded. The Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done these things, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. One of my personal goals is to leave this life on good terms and with a clean sheet. I've known men before me and what came out of the woodwork after they died wasn't at all good. Their memories are badly stained by the legacy of bitterness, weak wills, and in some cases, just plain evil character. My own dad wasn't perfect. He could be quite short-tempered, in fact, but when all is said and done, I'll always have to say about him that he provided for his family well. He didn't spend all of his money on drink, and there definitely weren't other women involved. Not all wives have been so blessed as my mother was. Nothing about my dad of a negative nature emerged after he died. I have done my own wrongs, even as a Christian, and there are few of us who've never wished to have certain moments back again so we could act and speak differently given a similar situation arising. I'm a great believer in the idea that if we're truly repentant about our wrongdoings and we've allowed the Lord to sand off our rough edges, the matters are really between him and us and he won't hang out our dirty laundry for all to see. However, if we don't fix things in private, he might well prepare a different course of action for us. The Bible tells us that our sins will surely find us out and what is done in the dark will be brought to the light. But we're also told that love covers over a multitude of sins. Step 9 in the Alcoholics Anonymous program states, we made direct amends to people we had harmed wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I think there is a lot of wisdom in that. Sometimes it's better to just to leave a sleeping dog lie, and sometimes it's proper and profitable to bring stuff out in the open. This is not always the case. At the end of the day, if we are truly repentant, we'll be able to say in the words of King Solomon's own dad, against you only, Lord, I have sinned. We need to understand three things from David's Mr. Manor, though. One, he not only sinned against Bathsheba, he covered up his wrong by doing a second and even worse wrong. Two, he wasn't at all repentant until he was called out by the prophet Nathan. And three, he had reached a place in his own head whereby he thought just because he was king, he could do just as he pleased. So, folks, when you listen to what Joe has been speaking about, how do you feel now? Are there things that you need to go and sort out? Does it mean that you need to have someone like David had, prophet, come and step into your life and reveal to you what is wrong? Or can you see, when you look at your own life in the light of Christ, that there are things that need to be sorted out, dealt with, 
put straight so that the legacy that you have when you pass on will not be one that reveals hidden secrets but is one that is glorifying and honoring to Christ in all that you have done. Psalm 45 is a poem, a wedding song written by the sons of Korah for the king. And so it's a song that is speaking about how great the king is and then speaking about the bride and how wonderful she is. And it begins with my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. But here's where, for me, everything goes and revolves. And that's around verse 2. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace. Why? Since God has blessed you forever. There's the line. There's the line that everything hinges on in the psalm. Since God has blessed you forever. When we get a grasp of how much it is that God loves us and God has blessed us and God has been there for us and God provides for us and God will never leave us nor forsake us and who he is and that he has blessed us, as it says in the book of Ephesians, with every spiritual blessing, then it transforms the way that we live. As we fix our eyes upon God and his benevolence towards us, it transforms our lives. Sure, it's a song all about the king getting married to his bride. Sure, it's a song that you can look at it from a messianic sense of how it is Christ and the church. But as I said, here's what it all goes and hinges on. And when we consider our lives and who we are, what is your life without the blessing and favour of God upon it? And as a result of you knowing that blessing, and knowing that blessing is eternal, how does it impact the way that you live? Are your lips anointed with grace? Are you the most excellent of men, most excellent of women, because of who you are in Christ? Think on that. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace. Since God has blessed you forever. Is that the testimony that can be said of you? Midlands 183. Is God interested in you? I didn't ask, is God interested in people? But is he interested in you? Does he care about you as an individual? A very good morning to you once again. Uh, this is Pastor Chris from Tullamore Bible Church. And I'm so glad you've joined us again as we continue to look at this series that we've entitled Real Jesus, where we try to remove misconceptions about Christ and rediscover who he really is from God's word, the Bible. This morning, I'll be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And if you have a Bible handy, I'd like to invite you to turn there with me and you can follow along as we look at this intriguing account together. Last time, we began to look at the story of Nicodemus a man who was deeply religious, but he wasn't right with God. He had religion, but he didn't possess a real relationship with God. It's a fascinating story. But today we're going to look at a story about yet another person that Jesus met. And again, it's a person from an entirely different background altogether. This account is recorded for us in the Gospel of John chapter 4. And here's what it says. You can follow along with me if you're there. John chapter 4, verse number 1. 
Therefore, when the Lord heard that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John did, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Okay, well, let's just stop here for a moment and point out a few things. Here, we get to know Jesus a little bit better. It says that Jesus was wearied from his journey. You know, Jesus, even though he was God the Son, he was not immune to fatigue and tiredness. In fact, the Bible tells us in another place that Jesus was tempted or tested in all points, just like we are, yet without sin. Just notice something here. Even though Jesus was in a state of being weary from exertion, he was still mindful of his father's business. You know, when you or I get weary or tired, we tend to get kind of insular, don't we? Maybe a bit self-focused. We often justify acting out in selfish ways when we're tired. And we all have different ways of doing that. But let me just talk for a moment to those of you who have trusted Jesus as your personal Savior. You know, the Bible teaches us that when you became a child of God, that God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, lives in you. And you know that Christ in you is never selfish, regardless of the circumstances. That's why we need to let Him be in control of our actions, even when we're tired. Uh, One of the biggest reasons that we miss out on God's plan, God's mission, or God's desire for us is because we're so self-consumed with our own plan, our own mission, or our own desires. Well, something to think about anyways. But it says that all this happened about the sixth hour. Now, going by the Jewish clock, this would put us right around 12 o'clock noon. And generally speaking, it was an unusual time of day to draw water. It was the hottest part of the day, and this task was usually done in the morning. Remember, we're talking about a day in a culture where there was no running water and people had to go to the well to get it. And they would often do that in the morning when it was cooler and the water was cooler. You wouldn't usually come to the well at noon. But this lady, this Samaritan woman is there. And as we read this account, I want us to understand the personal nature with which God views people. Remember, we started with that question, is God interested in you? And the question we really ask ourselves when we think that is, does God see me? We all have a need, a desire to be seen. Does God see you? Does God want you? My friend, the answer is absolutely yes. He does want you. He does see you. And as this Samaritan woman found out, God had a personal interest in her life as an individual. We'll pick up reading in verse number seven. It says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. See, Who are the Samaritans anyway, and why didn't the Jews have any dealings with them? Well, the Samaritans were descendants of Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles during the captivity. Uh, The Jews were, they viewed these Samaritans as less than, or as dogs, as it says in some places. This lady must have been very surprised or even fearful to find a Jewish man at this well, and even more surprised that he would actually talk with her. 
And, and as a Samaritan, the Jewish religious leaders would have considered her unclean, and the very thought of drinking water that she drew would have been repulsive to them. Now, this kind of prejudice seems terrible to us today, but it was a reality that they had to grapple with back then. But, you know, in observing Jesus here and his response, we get a much clearer picture of how God feels about people, about you and me. See, he's completely unaffected by human prejudices, like gender or race. God sees everyone as equal. And as we'll soon see, even one's past does not affect or alter God's heart for them. You know, in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, along with four other times in the New Testament alone, it says this, there is no partiality with God, or there's no favoritism with God. It says that at least five times in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 10, verses 11 to 13, it says this, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon him, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you know God does not discriminate at all based on gender or based upon where you're from, what nationality you are, what um, your socioeconomic status is? God does not place value judgments upon people based on any of those things. Now, friend, I want to ask you, do you ever feel second class with God? In other words, do you feel like God has more interest in someone else or maybe better plans for someone else or like someone else has more access to God than you? You know, if you feel that way, you got to ask yourself the question, why do I feel that way? Because you didn't get that idea from the Bible. See, if you have trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, how does God view you? Well, God sees you as his child in whom he delights. Now, whether you feel like it or not is another matter, but that's who you are to him regardless of how you feel. But friend, I imagine the majority of people that are listening this morning perhaps have not yet trusted Jesus as their personal Savior. And, and if that's you, or if you're not, you're not sure what I'm talking about, do you understand that God's desire for you, his greatest desire for you, is that you would become his child? That you would trust Jesus alone as your personal Savior from sin, so that as John chapter 1 verse 12 puts it, he can give you the right to become a child of God. You know, that's exactly what he wanted for this Samaritan woman. In fact, look what he says to her in verse number 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You know, this lady had no idea what God had to offer her. What is Jesus talking about when he said, If you only knew the gift of God? What is the gift of God? Well, in that account, that we looked at last time when Jesus met Nicodemus, he told us what the gift of God is. John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. He gave his Son. Okay, so the gift of God is Jesus and the life that he gives. Uh, in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they would have it more abundantly. See, Jesus is telling this woman that in knowing Christ personally, that the inner thirst of her heart will be quenched forever. He says he'll give to her living water. And as he puts it, uh, this is fulfillment, satisfaction, a genuine quenching of every need of the heart. Friend, do you know Jesus Christ personally? Do you know the gift of God? 
We'll pick up this story next time. But I just want to encourage you, if you have never trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, all friend, He is the gift of God, and He will give you a satisfaction that will never be quenched. Midlands 183.